0: Bibles, and turn with me for our sermon text today to Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 18. We brought Jeremiah from the evening service up to the morning service in study of a portion of section in the middle of Jeremiah known as the book of consolation, or the book of comfort, uh, where Jeremiah uh, speaks uh, somewhat uncharacteristically a word of comfort and encouragement and the hope of uh, better things. So let's uh, begin reading in Jeremiah chapter uh, 30, verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord People who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. Planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. Thus saith the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness, Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Hold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and her who is in labor, together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. The Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage in your word, and we pray that as we undertake to study it now, that your spirit would guide us to know its truths. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's any expectation placed upon Christmas, it is that of joy. Christmas is a joyful time. Or is it? You know, for some people, Christmas merely serves to accentuate the absence of somebody that they love. For others who look out and seem to see everybody getting with somebody else, families gathering together, the whole world seeming to come together, it merely serves to emphasize to them their own sense of loneliness. And for those who do have family and friends to gather with and may anticipate that, it seems that every year it's never quite what it was hoped to be. There's an argument or there's tension or something happens Something goes wrong, and maybe it was a good time, but not all that you dreamed it would be. And for other people, Christmas is simply a, a very stressful time that uh, you simply breathe a sigh of relief when it's all over. So is Christmas utterly devoid of joy? Well, no, of course not. There is joy to be found in all of those things, although not an ultimate joy, not a supremely satisfying Joy, but Christmas can be a time of that satisfying joy. You just have to know where to look, and Jeremiah points us in the right direction. Jeremiah shows us here where to look. Jeremiah writes at a time when there was not a lot of joy in Jerusalem. In fact, they were under the uh, the oppression of a foreign power, namely Babylon. In fact, their city had already been pillaged to some degree, carrying off not only wealth, but carrying off their king and executing him, installing a puppet king in his place, taking away many of the leading citizens of Jerusalem, as well as a significant part of the population, away into exile in Babylon. And in fact, it was only a matter of a short time before Jerusalem would be destroyed entirely. So times were dark, and much of Jeremiah's ministry was dark as he warned the people of coming judgment and told them to repent, and then once they had passed the point of no return, telling them that they needed to surrender to Babylon. They needed to acquiesce to the Lord's judgment on their land. But in the middle of that the dark message, Jeremiah in this section of his prophecy speaks of joy. It speaks of a future joy for the people of God. And as we read this passage, the reality is that the things that would bring them joy are the very things that will bring us joy. And all of those things, of course, have a great deal to do with what we celebrate at Christmas, namely the incarnation of Christ, the redeeming and saving purposes of the Lord through his Son. And those things we celebrate This time of year. And as we look at passages here, we'll see that that joy that Jeremiah describes comes from basically from three sources uh, that he describes here, that he mentions here. First of all, Jeremiah describes joy in a home, joy that comes from a home or being at home. We see this in the first part of our passage. The Lord had taken his people, into exile in Babylon. But he had no intention of leaving them there forever. In fact, after 70 years or so, he would bring them back to their homeland. But in the meantime, they were miserable. Their time in exile, especially at first, was very hard, very distressing. We catch something of a glimpse of that in Psalm 137. Listen to these words. This is, this is the description of the experience of being in exile in Babylon. Listen. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, Jerusalem. Misery. It was a hard time. It was a distressing time. They miss home. They miss all that it stood for, including the relationship with the Lord, all of that in a bad way. And so compare that, that misery, to their joy In the prospect of returning home, as Jeremiah describes it here in verses eighteen and nineteen. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them will come songs of thanksgiving. Remember they said, How can we sing the praise of the Lord in a foreign land? Well the Lord is saying now they're going to be singing, out of these buildings, you're going to hear the sound of music, of thanksgiving. Voices of those who celebrate. The Lord says, I will multiply them. They shall not be few. I will make them honored. And they shall not be small. You see, the Lord would bring them home. They would inhabit that city. That ruined city would be rebuilt. There would be celebration. There would be thanksgiving. People will multiply and become a great people. And there's more. Go on in verses 20 and 21. Their children shall be as they were of old. And their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves, their leader. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near. He shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. See, all people, of course, desire the well-being of their children. And the Lord here promises that their children would be restored. They would be numerous. And they and their parents would become a strong congregation of the Lord, a people certainly as a nation, but people who worship the Lord, who serve him. The Lord will protect them. He would give them a ruler from among themselves, and no longer would a a foreign potentate king uh, have power over God's people, but a ruler from among them who would govern them, and one who would have access to the presence of the Lord. Interesting how the Lord puts that. Who would dare of himself to approach me? You you think um, think of Esther when Mordecai challenged Esther to consider that the Lord perhaps had made her queen uh, for just such a time as this, when her people, the Jews, were threatened there in Persia. And Esther reflects on the fact that the king has not sent for her. then the law is, if anyone approaches the king unbidden, death is the consequence, unless the king extends the scepter to welcome the person and to grant them clemency from that death. And certainly uh, in the case of the Lord himself, uh, we don't approach him. We're sinners. He is holy. And the Lord says that here. Who would dare to approach me of himself? And yet this will be a leader. This will be a king who has access, who can go to God without fear. And then in verse 22 and again in 31 verse 1, beginning of the next chapter, the Lord repeats that formula. It is the very essence of of the relationship between him and his people. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now, sandwiched between those two is this warning of God's judgment, the storm of the Lord, which can serve on the one hand both as a reminder of what happened in the past of their sins and and, and what their sins led to as God brought his judgment on them and discipline on them, but it also serves as a warning for the future, Don't presume. Remember the lessons of the past. Be faithful to the Lord. But in between, uh, where there's that warning on either side, the, the book ends, so to speak, is that promise of God's covenant relationship with his people. I will be your God. You will be my people. Now, that's exactly what happened. The Lord did bring back people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And they came back, and you read in Ezra how they rebuilt the temple. You read in Nehemiah how they rebuilt the wall and kind of got the city going again. And it was a good time. It was a happy time. And yet it was also a bittersweet time because what they now had paled in comparison with the glory that they had had before. It just didn't quite match uh, what they had had before. Now, Jeremiah's point here was not so much to foretell that return, although that return was a partial fulfillment of what Jeremiah is describing here. They did come back. They did rebuild. They did get things going again. But it wasn't quite the splendor, the grandeur, that seems to be implied in these passages. And that's because these passages do point to something bigger, something grander, a much bigger homecoming of the people of God under a new covenant that the Lord would make. And one, Lord willing, we'll look at in a couple of weeks as Jeremiah goes on to talk about that but rather in the New Covenant, a people constituted in and led by that prince, that ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would rule on David's throne over his people, who certainly had access to God like no other has ever had. So in our sin, uh, we too are exiles from God, cut off from him, separated from him, But in Christ, we are able to come home to Him. Because you see, our soul's true home is in relationship with God. It's being restored to that relationship with Him that our sins had broken. And that Christ, through His death and resurrection, has atoned for. So that we are able to go home. We are are able to be back with our Father. You know, the song says, there's no place like home for the holidays. Some people will be at home this Christmas. But only... A Christian has the joy of being truly at home, right with God, in relationship with the God we were made to know. And apart from whom, nothing is right. Nothing is quite as it should be. You see, only the Christian, only the one who has believed in Christ, is at home this Christmas and throughout the year in that way. Truly home with the Lord, home with his people as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. So that's the first source of joy, is homecoming, the joy of being at home, being with those we love, being with family. And in, a, in, a, in an earthly sense, that is a source of joy, although invariably uh, not perfect, not all we might hope it would be. And as Christians, however, our hearts, our souls, are home with the Lord, and not simply us, but among people of God. So that's one source of joy. There's a second source that Jeremiah talks about here in this passage, and that is that we have joy in God's love, not just in, at home with him, but joy in his love. Because some of you know what it's like to be home or to go home, and there's not a whole lot of love. It's something you are there, but you simply tolerate. But this is a home characterized by love. Now, we pick up, see this in verses 2 through 9, chapter 31, verses 2 through 9. Joy in God's love. Jeremiah uses a couple of words in verse 2 to describe the suffering of God's people, especially as it relates to their being in exile. The sword and the wilderness. The sword is a picture of their being conquered and of their forced captivity. The wilderness describes uh, particularly that experience of being cut off from their home, cut off from the temple, cut off from all that they had known, and basically being a place uh, put in a place where they were materially and especially spiritually desolate, just like a wilderness where they would have nothing to rely on ultimately except the Lord Himself. Which is part of the purpose of that exile was to strip away everything else, where all they had left was the Lord. But you know, even in this place this place of the sword, this place of the wilderness, the Lord shows to them His goodness. People survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness. When they sought rest, the Lord was there for them. And then the Lord gives them this astounding reminder uh, in verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Here they were, taken captive in the wilderness, Babylon, apart from everything they knew and loved. And it would be very easy to think, well, that's it. We're done for. We're over. God has forsaken us. He's, he's judged us. He's moved on. But the Lord says, no. Even in the wilderness, they found grace. And the Lord says, I have not stopped loving you just the opposite i've loved you with an everlasting love one that goes back to eternity past one that will continue into eternity future therefore i've continued my faithfulness to you haven't you been there times when you felt like you've experienced the sword in the wilderness and you think where is god in all this and god says i haven't abandoned you i've loved you with an everlasting love, my child. And that's why my faithfulness continues to you. You may not see it. You may not experience it or think you don't. But isn't it also true that those times of the worst suffering are times when we experience most the grace, the love of our Heavenly Father? Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's not abandoned them. He's not abandoned us. Though they were in exile, it didn't mean God's love had grown cold. didn't mean it had failed. His love was still there. He still had plans for them, still had purpose for them, including celebration of joy, prosperity, true worship. Look at verses 4 through 6. The Lord says, I will build you up. You shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. Planters will plant and enjoy the fruit. There shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Again, celebration and being reestablished, planting and fruitfulness, prosperity. And then going up to Zion to worship, true worship, not going up to the high places, the pagan worship sites like they used to do and did in Jeremiah's day. And Jeremiah confronted them about it. But going up to Zion, going up to the place of the Lord to worship the Lord. And so those things are going on in the, in the context of God's love and faithfulness. In verses 7 through 9, go on with that same theme of, of shouts of gladness, praise, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel, the Lord gathering them, bringing them from the north in Babylon and from all over, the blind, the lame, the pregnant, the one in labor, a great company. They will return. The Lord promises in verse 9, uh, to lead them back out of their misery, out of their tears, by brooks of water and a straight path. Why? Because I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see, this this love of God, this fatherly care for his people, that he doesn't abandon them. He may discipline them, but he brings them back together when it's all over and replaces their tears with joy, with shouts of celebration, even, as it says, merrymaking. Now later, in 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 6, Paul would take this verse, and others like it from the Old Testament, and talk about the people of God. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, there are a lot of people out there who will have joy in the love of another person at Christmas or joy in the love of their families. But you see, it's only the Christian, only the one who is in Christ, who knows the love of God as his heavenly father. God is a father only to his own, only to those who have been adopted in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Romans eight thirty nine that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in, that is, it comes to us through, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can celebrate because in Christ we have a home. We can celebrate because in Christ we know the love of God, the love of Father who has committed that love to us from everlasting to everlasting. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But there's a third source of joy that Jeremiah mentions here in this passage. And it's a bit of a curious one. And yet we find it there in verses 10 through 14. And that is the joy of good news. The joy of good news. We have joy in the message of God's grace and redemption itself, a message that comes to us that we receive, but also a message that we are able to proclaim to others. And we always like to receive good news, don't we? Of course, But we also like to share good news with other people. Sometimes we just can't keep it in. We have to tell someone uh, about good news for us or maybe something that would be good for them. When we have good news for them, don't you like to be the one who's able to give them that good news? Most people hate to be the bearer of bad news. I think there are some people who sort of take a perverse delight in it. But most people hate to deliver bad news. It's very hard. But to be the one who's able to take to somebody good news, well, we like to do that. Uh, Sometimes we can't even wait to, to tell them good news about ourselves or maybe even good news that concerns them. Well, that's part of the joy that is described here, a message of redemption, a message of grace. Look at verse 10. This is an instruction to the nations to listen to the message and to God's people and to the nations to spread that message that he has. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. The message is that the Lord is taking his scattered people and he's now bringing them back together and he shepherds them just like a shepherd would watch over his sheep. See, this passage is amazing for how it it picks up Threads of, of ideas and concepts that have gone before it, but it also looks ahead to, to biblical uh, ideas and teachings and doctrines and, and imagery that comes after, such as Christ as, as the good shepherd. And you see that, you can trace those things throughout the scriptures. The Lord who scattered his people is now bringing them back together. And verse 11 goes on then to elaborate. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. You see, the people of God were to declare the saving mercies of God. God is gathering his people. The Lord is bringing his people back together. Not only do they have a message to declare, but then they were to live accordingly. How should they live in light of that message? That The Lord is now gathering his people to himself back together. What is the response? Well, if you've been paying attention in this passage, it's one of joy. It's one of celebration. Look at verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, of the grain, of the wine, the oil, over the the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What should characterize the people of God? Holiness? Absolutely. That's not the only thing that's mentioned here. In fact, that's not even mentioned here, really. What characterizes the redeemed people of God here is joy, is celebration. You know, sometimes we're good at promoting holiness as characteristic of the people of God, although whether we truly live that or not is is debatable. But what about joy? What about this kind of celebration that is described here? You know, some people might... Look at Christians, us Christians, maybe us Presbyterian Christians, and get the idea that we've been delivered bad news. Um, I've, I've shared this with you before. Charles Spurgeon's comments, the Baptist preacher in the 1800s in London, his his admonition to his students in his preachers' college. Um, you know, he said, when you preach on heaven, try to look joyful. When you preach on hell, your usual face will do. You know, may that not be true of us, how uncharacteristic it is and how sad. I mean, some people almost see it as an obligation as Christians that we should somehow look stricken. Well, that's not how God's people are described here. There's celebration, there's joy. Now, not that that's not tainted by the pains, the sorrows, the heartaches of this life, but joy is to be a characteristic of God's people and characteristic among God's people. And some semblance of these words did occur when the exiles came home. They rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls. You know, Nehemiah in chapter 6, verse 16, tells us what happened when the wall was rebuilt in Jerusalem. After the exiles started coming back, he says, When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You see, the nations could see that God was at work among his people. They saw that. And in fact, that created fear among them to see that God was real, that he was at work. They recognized God's hand Were the people rejoicing. Sort of strange thing happens in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse nine. They're coming together and the the word of God is read and the people start to weep. They start to mourn. And Nehemiah says, wait a minute, he has to prod them to rejoice. Maybe they were Presbyterian. He had to prod them to rejoice. This is uh, chapter 8, Nehemiah eight ten. He said to them, go your way, eat fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet. You know, stop the wailing and mourning. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. There was some sort of fulfill. There was some rejoicing there, although they had to be told to do it, sort of a fulfillment. But of course, the, the true words of fulfillment or the true fulfillment of these words of Jeremiah came later came in the person and work of Christ, who is the true fulfillment of verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. That same language, even the same word, occurs in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where Jesus says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, see, that's why the angels could appear to the shepherd. The angel came and appeared to the shepherd and said, I bring you good news of great joy. Because there's joy in good news. The Lord redeems his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Father gave his Son, Jesus, to death as a ransom, price, to obtain the freedom of his children From the hands of sin, hands that were too strong for them, hands that are too strong for us. God redeems us from those hands by his son. You see, we have the privilege of receiving the good news, believing in the Lord Jesus to whom that good news points, and receiving that good news for ourselves, but then in turn to be able to go along and pass that good news on to others declaring the good news of a Savior to all the world. And we do that through declaring the message first and foremost. It has to be declared verbally, spelled out, just like the Scriptures do, that tell us specific uh, things that happened in history of Christ's coming and His death and resurrection and His offer of salvation to all who believe. Dear friends, that message should also be seen in your life. In holiness, yes but also in joy, a joy that accompanies the fact that you have received good news. Holiness, yes, but also joy, celebration, rejoicing. In each of these sections we've looked at, a home, the love of God, a good news, the response is consistently celebration, joy, gladness. So will this Christmas be a time of joy for you? Maybe it is. Hard times for you right now. Maybe you do miss someone very much this time of year. Maybe Christmas only serves to remind you of happier times. But the reality is that you can rejoice in Christmas and always for the very reasons that Jeremiah mentions here that God has given you in Christ a home with Him and His people. That he has set his love upon you in Christ, love that will never fail, that will never leave you. And that he's given you the message of the good news, the gospel, to believe and to share with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. Thank you, Father, that these are things that nothing can take away. That these are things, Lord, that the events of this world cannot change. And Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that whatever other joys might accompany celebration of Christmas, that certainly these bedrock foundation truths would bring us great joy at Christmas and always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.